Oh, man. How you doing, Pastor Wade? The only woman having more fun than us right now is Timo. <laughs> well, good evening, LCM! Last week, we had a catastrophic car accident involving our smallest children. This week, there was a literal flood of sewage that covered nearly every area of this meeting space. But it was cleaned up successfully. Today, Judah had an issue involving, I kid you not, spontaneous combustion of rags on a job site in a customer's air-conditioned home. I say all of that to say that these teachings are meaningful enough to be opposed by the enemy. Thankfully, we were warned in advance that these kingdom tasks require patient endurance on the part of the saints. Tonight, we have no intentions of backing up. We're not going to shut up and we're not going to let up. Instead, we're more determined than ever to keep pressuring our pace. We'll be covering Jeremiah 45 through 48. In order to accomplish this task, we are going to renew our format from last week. We're going to pray and then begin reading together while interweaving exposition throughout the text. Amen. 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 Spencer, pray for us. Yes, sir. (laughs) Mighty God, we thank you for this opportunity, Lord. Lord, we are excited to hear about your word, Lord, and what you are God. Lord, we come to you, Lord, but we shake ourselves, Lord. We're not going to let anything deter us, Lord. Lord, we're not going to let anything slow us down, God. Lord, we're going to hear your word, and we're going to put this into practice, Lord. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for this opportunity in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we're going to pick up in reading our text, and you know who's going to do that, right? Linton. Come on, Linton. Start reading verse uh, chapter 45, verse 1. This is what Jeremiah the prophet told Baruch, son of Neriah, in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah. After Baruch had written on a scroll the words Jeremiah was then dictating, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to you, Baruch. You said, woe to me, the Lord has added sorrow to my pain. Mm. I am worn out with groaning and find no rest. The Lord says, say this to him, this is what the Lord says. I will overthrow what I have built and uproot what I have planted throughout the land. Should you then seek great things for yourself? Seek them not, for I will bring disaster on all people, declares the Lord. But wherever you go, I will let you escape with your life. Man, so this short chapter constitutes an admonition from the Lord to Baruch through the mouth of his longtime friend. And co-laborer Jeremiah. These guys have been in ministry together for a while now. That in of itself is amazing, given that we have been discussing the need to have our every motive, action, and decisions laid bare before the other members of this body. At this point, you should recognize Proverbs 20 at work here. We want to hand that out, don't we? No. No? Then we'll read it. (laughs) Proverbs chapter 20 and starting in verse 5 says, The purposes of a man's heart are deep waters, but a man of understanding draws them out. 
You see, Baruch's heart, as well as ours, are full of many purposes. Say many purposes. Many purposes. Some good and some bad. That's true. Some of which we understand and some of which we don't understand. But his teammate, Jeremiah, who is a man of understanding, assisted Baruch by drawing the purposes out. He could see inside of his brother. Now, how thankful do you think these two men were to have each other by their side? All right, let's pick up in verse 6. Verse 6 says, Many a man claims to have unfailing love, but a faithful man, a loyal man, who can find? Can you see how both Baruch and Jeremiah demonstrated their faithfulness and their loyalty to each other and to God? They worked in the same tasks. They assisted each other. They spoke for each other. And even when necessary, they spoke words of correction to each other. How important is it to to note that tonight, that Jeremiah and Baruch had this kind of relationship together? Verse 7. The righteous man leads a blameless life. Blessed are his children after him. Listen, if you want to lead a righteous life and see the generations after you, you better learn how to develop these kinds of relationships in this body. Amen! Let's go on to verse 8. When a king sits on his throne to judge, he winnows out all evil with his eyes. Can you see how the king of kings was winnowing out potential evil desires or wrong motives in Baruch? Did you see that? Well, how did he do it? Do you want to know? He used his friend, Jeremiah, to speak to him. Amen. Wow. If you want to make make it to the successful end of your calling, you better learn how to develop these kinds of relationships. Mm. Verse 9. Who can say, I have kept my heart pure. I am clean and without sin. No takers? Well, neither Jeremiah nor Baruch could make this claim. None of us should deceive ourselves by believing that we do not need the same kind of interactions that are found in Jeremiah 45. They are there for our daily protection. Look at verse 10. Differing weights and differing measures. The Lord detests them both. For weeks we've been discussing the judgment that befalls the house of God. And if it comes on the godly for their refinement, how much more should the ungodly expect the coming judgment of God? You will see tonight that each of the nations that are being addressed, God uses the same language, the same standard, and the same motive as God does when he addresses his nation, Israel. He does not have differing measures or differing standards, and he never will. So let us draw your attention to the attitude adjustment that Baruch made and that all of us must make because of this coming crisis. We read the verse earlier in the 1984 NIV, But now listen to it in the ESV. Verse 5 says, And do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. For behold, I am bringing disaster upon all flesh. All flesh. 
declares the Lord. But I will give you your life as a prize of war in all places to which you may go. You see, disaster is determined for every nation. Just like salvation is determined for every nation. It is how we face those disasters that determine whether we will enter the kingdom of God or be winnowed out of it. For Jeremiah and for Baruch, their very lives were as a prize of war. They got to keep their lives. Their lives were a gift for advancing the kingdom of God and no longer, and their lives no longer belonged to them. Amen, somebody. Amen. Now that is an attitude adjustment that all believers must make. Now consider what Baruch and Jeremiah's lives have been surrounded by at this point in the book. Tell us about it, Nick. So Baruch had to deliver Jeremiah's prophecies in the temple complex because where was Jeremiah again? Oh yeah, he was in prison. Baruch also had been slandered by the faction that wanted to return back to Egypt. Those two men together collectively wrote a work that had been cut up and thrown into the fire. And then they were told to rewrite it and add beautiful things to it. That's quite the task. They had every reason to be discouraged in the decades of ministry that they had participated together in. But that's not what Baruch is being warned about. He is being warned about seeking great things for himself. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. The time of captivity and judgment was upon their nation. This constituted a crisis and an adjustment in the common attitude that yeah. we're going to read in 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 26. Let's talk about adjustments to our attitude. This is 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 26 and 27. But Elisha said to him, Was not my spirit with you when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? Is this the time to take money? No. Is this the time? No. Or to accept clothes, olive groves, vineyards, flocks, herds, or men's servants and maidservants? No. Verse 27. Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and to your descendants forever. Then Gehazi went from Elisha's presence, and he was leprous as white as snow. All too often, men have a Gehazi attitude instead of a a Baruch adjustment. Mm. They are blind to their own motives and miss God's actual objectives for the time they are living in. Well, the thing is, is you're New Testament believers. It's just an age of grace. I feel grace explosions happening. (laughs) So let's read 1 Corinthians 7, 29. What I mean, brothers. What I mean. What I mean. What I mean. Where's Raja Israel? What I mean. What I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none. Sorry, honey. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world. As if not engrossed in them. Come on. For this world in its present form is passing away. away. Wow. See, Paul warned the Corinthians not to fall prey to this mistake. In times of crisis, 
We must help one another focus on God's objectives for our present day. Keep that stuff straight. In other words, we keep warning you about this because we actually believe that we are living in the days of Jeremiah. I believe national judgment is coming on our land, constituting what some might think is a present crisis. Okay? The book of Revelation in the 13th chapter also has something to say about this. Revelation 13, 9. He who has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword he will be killed. No stopping it. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. Of the, of the wicked or of the saints? Of the saints. Now is the time to have all of your motives, all of your actions, and all of your decisions made in the transparency of a full-fledged team, lest you fall prey to missing the mark. Somebody now say amen in the house of God. Now, if you really believed that disaster was imminent upon all flesh, how seriously would you take the words in Philippians 1.27? We want to help you guys remember well Philippians 1.27 from yesterday. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved. And that by God. Not just that you're not frightened, but that you are contending as one man in the faith. That's a sign to those who oppose us. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Amen. Amen. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now here that I still have. Paul was encouraged. He said, wow, this was granted to me, and I can see that it was also granted to you as well. Chapter 2 starts out. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. Amen. Having the same love. Being one in spirit and in purpose. I don't know how else he could get this point across to us. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourself. We want you to remember that selfish ambition is not wanting to do something malicious. It is wanting to act independently from the body to accomplish something good. Whoa. Something good. That was self-determined, self-directed, and self-administered. Wow. wow. Yeah. Baruch had to be warned about this. Do you think that you don't? Woo! We can learn about Baruch, and we've learned to love him, but there's a reason that he had to be warned about this. I think the scripture is helping us because we need to be warned about the same thing. Yes. Then conceit is not harboring an obvious sin. It is your tendency to believe that you do not need the examination of your brothers in every area of your life. Oh. Wow. Have you ever oh. thought about being conceived that way? Huh. No. Not until yesterday. 
part is pure while foregoing the process with the rest of the body. Self-deception. Baruch received the correction of his brothers, who was close enough to him to know that he needed it. Do you, you agree with that? Yeah. So let me ask you, can you receive this word, and is there anyone close enough to you to give it? Mm. Mm. That's a good question. We could pause there for a long time. You'd feel pressure mounting on your shoulders, and that would be good for you. But we have to go ahead and move to chapter 46. In order to prepare you for what you're going to encounter in chapter 46, I want to remind you that Obadiah 15 says this. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. Okay? Whether you've got a good president, bad president, all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return on your own head. See, God has one set standard for all nations. And he often uses his own nation as an example, both positively and negatively, of what happens given your relationship to that standard. Come on. Now, we gave you an analogy all the way back in chapters 24 and 25. You're going to see this analogy play out, so I'm going to read it one more time. There was a man with his son and many servants. The man became displeased that his son and his servants were disobedient. So the man takes one of the servants and commands the servant to spank his son. After the son is corrected, the man then proceeds to discipline all of his servants in a very specific order, saving the one who spanked his son for last. You're about to encounter that process again. We've just gone through chapters where we witnessed Israel getting spanked. And now God is going to proceed to discipline every other nation until he comes to Babylon last. All right, so this slide will help you see the process. In our chapters tonight, we see ten nations addressed. The first is Egypt in chapter 46, 1 through 28. Second is Philistia, chapters 47, 1 through 7. Third is Moab, chapters 48, 1 through 47. Then we have Ammon, chapters 49, 1 through 6. Then Edom, chapters 49, 7 through 22. Then we get to Damascus, which is the head of Syria, in chapters 49, verses 23 through 27. Then we have Kedar, chapters 49, 28 through 32. Hazor, 49, 33. Elam, 49, 34 through 39. And at the very last, God saves the best for last, Babylon in chapters 50, verses 1 through 51, verse 64. Now, did you notice Babylon is last? You know, it's a misnomer to think of Jeremiah as a prophet to the nation of Israel alone. Jeremiah was a prophet to the nation of Israel as well as other nations, and that's spoken of in Jeremiah 1, 5. We wanted to remind you because it's easy after many, many weeks uh, studying Jeremiah to uh, simply think that he was a prophet only to Israel. But we wanted to remind you of what Jeremiah 1.5 says. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. See, Jeremiah wasn't just a prophet to the nation of Israel, but a prophet to the nations 
And that explains why in Jeremiah 46 all the way through 51, we have 10 specific yeah. nations that Jeremiah is prophesying yeah. to. Our God has the same standard for every nation. He will discipline every nation. And he will also save members of every nation under heaven. Come on, that's good news. Yeah. And I'm encouraged by that truth. This is first true for his nation Israel, but it is also true for every other nation because they belong to him as well. This is Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 through 10. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God. From every tribe, and language, and people, and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign on the earth. As we go through the discipline of the nations and their various judgments... Never forget, God will always save a remnant from each nation. Is that good news? Yes. I would like to say it's a penitent Ooh. remnant. Oh, come on. This is true first for the Jew and also then for every nation on earth. Lastly, it should not escape the notice of the astute biblical student that the number 10 is significant here. Now to refresh your memory, remember that Moses defeated Amalek, Og, and Sihon prior to crossing the Jordan for a total of three major nations. Mm. Then the book of Deuteronomy describes Joshua's seven-year campaign to destroy the other seven nations. Mm. We find this in Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 through 3. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, mm. unless you're Sekola, yeah. Girgashites, <laughs> Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, HIVites, or otherwise known as Hivites, and Jebusites. I'm talking about seven nations, larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. The Bible repeats this kind of interplay between three and seven for a total of ten hostile nations frequently. If you'd like to learn more about that, read Daniel 7. Then read Revelation 13, and then cap it off with Revelation 17. You'll see the same total of 10 broken up into 3 and 7 again and again and again. These kind of events preceded Jeremiah's day. But they were also foretold in days beyond Jeremiah. Days that are even in our future. And the pattern is pretty consistent. Ten hostile nations with a division among them that is seven and three. A total of ten, but seven and three nevertheless. Anyway, we promised to get to chapter 46. So we're going to begin with prophecies against Egypt. This is the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet concerning the nations. Concerning Egypt, this is the message against the army of Pharaoh Nego king of Egypt, which was defeated at Carchemish on the Euphrates River by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah. Prepare your shields, both large and small, and march out for battle. Harness the horses, mount the steeds, take your positions with helmets on, polish your spears, put on your armor. What do I see? They are terrified, they are retreating, their warriors are defeated, they flee in haste without 
there is terror on every side, declares the Lord. The swift cannot flee, nor the strong escape. In the north, by the river Euphrates, they, they stumble and fall. Who is it that rises like the Nile, like rivers of surging waters? Man, rivers of surging waters. Yeah. In the beginning of these poetic and nationalistic prophecies, waters are used to describe the nations themselves as well as one nation being used as an instrument of judgment against the other. Here's the battle. Here the battle is between Egypt and Babylon. Or said another way, in this passage, the Nile and the Euphrates. What is so interesting is that from the beginning of the book of Jeremiah, the imagery has been seen. We will see this in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 13 through 14. The word of the Lord came to me again. What do you see? I see a boiling pot tilting away from the north, I answered. The Lord said to me, from the north, disaster will be poured out on all who live in the land. Babylon was described to those living in Israel as a boiling pot of raging waters. And now the same imagery is being said of Babylon's relationship to Egypt. You are going to continue to see this water imagery as we continue in these chapters tonight. We're only pointing this out here because as you go through the nations and you see it with each nation, it also reappears in the book of Revelation in the 12th chapter. And we are going to get to that tonight as well. Come on. Let's go to verse 8. Egypt rises like the Nile, like rivers of surging waters. She says, I will rise and cover the earth. I will destroy cities and their people. Charge, O horses. Drive furiously, O charioteers. March on, O warriors, men of Cush and Put, and Put who carry shields, men of Lydia who draw the bow. So here in Egypt's pride, the nation believes that they are right, the rising river of dominance. Nope. However, <laughs> in verse 10, which we'll get to, you will see the Lord who causes the nations that to rise or fall. He makes a declaration that Egypt will become a sacrifice to him under the power of Babylon or the Euphrates River. Wow. That's a, that's a sobering reality. Yeah. You're going to hear him say it. Yeah. Pick up in verse 10. But that day belongs to the Lord, the Lord Almighty, a day of vengeance. For vengeance on his foes, the sword will devour till it is satisfied, till it has quenched its thirst, thirst with blood. For the Lord, the Lord Almighty, will offer sacrifice in the land of the north by the river Euphrates. I want you guys to notice that Babylon is not godly, but nevertheless, when they're used in the hands of our God to accomplish his purposes, then they're called God's sword. Mm -hmm. yeah. Egypt doesn't believe this will happen, and Egypt can also not stop this from happening. Right. It's quite literally what Psalm 33.10 says. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. Amen. The purposes of his heart through all generations. Amen. It's a profound lesson that an individual can learn from this international interaction. Yeah. If you avoid voluntary sacrifice for the will of God your entire life, then you will become an involuntary sacrifice for God during the judgment. Wow. If it's true of the nation, then it's true of individuals within the nation. Wow. Yeah. 
Check out verse 11. Go up to Gilead and get balm, O virgin daughter of Egypt. But you multiply remedies in vain. There is no healing for you. The nations will hear of your shame. Your cries will fill the earth. One warrior will stumble over another. Both will fall down together. Now, did you notice that God calls Egypt a virgin daughter? Come on, girl. Did you catch Come that? Come here, you here? virgin daughter. We will get into that more as we go. But you should never lose the perspective that every nation belongs to God and is valued by him. This is how he sees Egypt. Now, we heard about Egypt's medicines. Egypt's medicines are no more useful to her than Israel's cisterns that she dug for herself. The message is the same for both nations. You have come to judgment that cannot be stopped, and there's nothing you can do to change it. There is no remedy for you left other than to endure the judgment giving glory to God. Now, Ezekiel commented on this in the very same vein as Jeremiah, and he was a contemporary of Jeremiah. This is Ezekiel 30, verse 20 through 26. Listen to the verbiage here in Ezekiel 30 and see if you can pick on, pick up on some of the very same themes that the Lord God spoke to his nation, Israel. In the eleventh year, in the first month, on the seventh day, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, I have broken the arm of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. It has not been bound up for healing. Wow, that's the same word for medicines that we just read in the passage in Jeremiah. It has not been bound up for healing or put in a splint so as to become strong enough to hold a sword. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against Pharaoh, king of Egypt. I will break both his arms, the good arm as well as the broken one, and make the sword fall from his hand. I will disperse the Egyptians among the nations. Wow. And scatter them through the countries. Like the Egyptians were going to have their own diaspora. I will strengthen the arms of the king of Babylon and put my sword in his hand. Again, the Lord God using a servant to punish someone else. He's putting his sword in the hand of Babylon. But I will break the arms of Pharaoh and he will groan before him like a mortally wounded man. I will strengthen the arms of the king of Babylon, but the arms of Pharaoh will fall limp. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Hallelujah! This is God's plan for his nation Israel, but here we're seeing that it's also God's plan for the nation of Egypt. Yeah. When I put my sword into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he brandishes it against Egypt, I will disperse the Egyptians among the nations and scatter them through the countries. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Some grave phrases in this passage, phrases that we've heard pertaining to Israel as a nation, but also some amazing promises that the nation of Egypt and its remnant will know the Lord God because of the purposes that he has for them. Yeah. Oh, they're going to get even better, I promise. Yeah. Even better. Let's find out in verse 13. This is the message the Lord spoke to Jeremiah the prophet about the coming of Nebuchadnezzar Babylon to attack Egypt. Announce this in Egypt and proclaim it in Migdal. Proclaim it also in Memphis and Tavana. Take your positions and get ready for the sword devours those around you. Why will your warriors be laid low? They cannot stand for the Lord will, will push 
over each other. They will say, get up, let us go back to our own peoples and our native land, away from the sword of the oppressor. Now this sound mildly familiar? Notice that Jeremiah is proclaiming to Egypt the exact same message as he proclaimed to Israel. Namely, the sword is coming upon you and cannot be resisted or avoided because it is really the Lord's hand at work. If you keep a Revelation 5 or Revelation 7 perspective that every nation will be before his throne, then you may see these kinds of events as both judgment of the nation, but also the beginning of salvation for individuals. Nations have destinies and individuals have choices. Perhaps this is what Paul had in mind in Romans 11. In Romans 11, Paul makes kind of a profound statement, and he's talking about national Israel and the Gentile nations in a bit of a reverse order, but it's the same basic argument. 11.32, he says, uh, men over to obedience so that he may have mercy on them all. God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Every nation shown to be disobedient that he might have a merciful attitude towards the remnant in every nation that comes to him. Wow. That would mean, literally, that God deals the same way with all nations. Wow. He just picks his nation first, and they're the only ones with a guarantee it's going to work out right. right. Wow. Okay? <laughs> to this, Paul breaks into Psalm, like, like a, a doxology. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For for from him and through him and to him are all things. By that, he meant the nations. Okay, to him be glory forever. Amen. As we move through these verses, you're going to see for every nation, a remnant is addressed. Judgment on the nation is addressed. Separation from their nationalistic archons is addressed. And it's the same language that he uses for Israel. Israel goes first, then all other nations get to follow. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's pick up in verse 17. There they will explain. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, is only a loud noise. He has missed his opportunity. As surely as I live, declares the king, whose name is the Lord Almighty, one will come who is like Tabor among the mountains, like like Carmel by the sea. Half your belongings were exiled, you who live in Egypt, for Memphis will be laid waste and lie in ruins, lie in ruins without inhabitants. Egypt is a beautiful heaven. Oh, a beautiful heaven. Come on, Elder Charlie, a beautiful little heifer. <laughs> so in the midst of judgment, God is still calling Egypt a beautiful, beautiful heifer. Yeah. Because he loves her. In the midst of judgment, he's still speaking Christy, love language. I can't remember what your daddy called all the little girls in the house. Fine little heifers. <laughs> Long time ago, this was apparently more flattering than it is now. <laughs> Today, we would say a beautiful F-550 Ford. <laughs> These judgments are to break the pride of the nation and dethrone their archons, but also to save a remnant. That is what these judgments do. Break and dethrone archons 
but they also save the remnant from the power of the archons, as both Isaiah and Ezekiel says. Do you want to hear what Isaiah says about this? He gets pretty clear in his descriptions. Isaiah 19, verse 16 through 25. In that day, the Egyptians will be like women. Oh, that's scary. (laughs) Wow. They will shudder with fear at the uplifted hand that the Lord Almighty raises against them. And the land of Judah will bring terror to the Egyptians. Everyone to whom Judah is mentioned will be terrified because of what the Lord Almighty is planning against them. In that day, five cities in Egypt will speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord Almighty. One of them will be called the city of destruction. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the heart of Egypt. Come on! Wow! And also a monument to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and witness to the Lord Almighty in the land of Egypt. How amazing is that? When they cry out to the Lord because of their oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender, and he will rescue them. How many of you guys, this is a new concept. It's new that Egypt is going to have a savior and a rescuer that the Lord himself sends for that people. Come on. So the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians. And in that day, they will acknowledge the Lord. Wow. They will worship with sacrifices and grain offerings. They will make vows to the Lord and keep them. Yes, and we were counting on that. Yes. Verse 22. The Lord will strike Egypt with a plague. Uh He will strike them and heal them. Come on, strike and heal. Yes. They will turn to the Lord and he will respond to their pleas and heal them. And the Lord knows exactly how to get a nation in a position where they are ready for the healing of God. Hey, parents, what what is it when you strike your child for their healing? Because Egypt is also his son. Come on. Verse 23 is it's a passage that is precious to us in this house. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. Yeah. The Assyrians will go to Egypt and the Egyptians to Assyria. Do you know how you know that's the millennial reign, Nick? How? Because there's not presently a highway that you can drive on in all of Egypt. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, that's not quite true. It's only true in the Sinai Peninsula. But Ibrahim, you and I are going to get to build this thing, man. Yes. The Egyptians and Assyrians will worship together. I'm looking forward to the days and the nights and the day where we have disciples that we're sending each other across yeah. borders. Amen. In that day, Israel will be the third Come on. along with Egypt and Assyria. Come on, Trister. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> A blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people. Assyria, my handiwork. Amen. And Israel, my If Egypt, Assyria, and Israel form an unbreakable bond and a team, how much more should you be able to do that with people in this room? Come on. Yes, that's good. Hear what Ezekiel says on this. This is Ezekiel 29. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will bring a sword against you and kill your men and their animals. Bad day. Egypt will become a desolate wasteland. (laughs) Then they will know that I am the Lord. You might see his purpose in this destruction. 
because you said the Nile is mine, I made it. Therefore, I am against you and against your streams. And I will make the land of Egypt a ruin in a desolate waste from Migdal to a swan, as far as the border of Cush. No foot of man or animal will pass through it. No one will live there for 40 years. Remember 40 years. I will make the land of Egypt desolate among the de devastated lands. And her cities will lie desolate 40 years among ruined cities. And I will disperse the Egyptians among the nations, like in exile, and scatter them through the countries. This is usually where we stop when we think about Egypt. Judgment, destruction, they're dispersed, and that's the end. But here, verse 13. Yet, Yet, this is what the sovereign Lord says. At the end of 40 years, I will gather the Egyptians from the nations where they were scattered. Ooh. I will bring them back from captivity and return them to Upper Egypt, wow. the land of their ancestry. There they will be a lowly kingdom. When you hear the word lowly kingdom, you should think humble kingdom humble. as opposed to proud yeah, kingdom. Like the yeah. Nile is mine. Yeah, like. let's... Amen. Let's pick up in verse 21. <laughs> the mercenaries in her ranks are like fattened cows. They too will turn and flee together. They will not stand their ground. For the day of disaster is coming upon them. The time for them to be punished. Egypt will hiss like a fleeing serpent as the enemy advances in force. They will come against her with axes like men who cut down trees. Well... I don't know. I love the NIV. I always have. But uh, they kind of botched this one. So I want you to hear this in the Young's Literal translation. Is that all right? Yes. yes. In the Young's Literal, Jeremiah 46, 22, for your notes. Its voice as a serpent goeth on. For with a force they go, and with axes they have come to, to her uh, as hewers of trees. The issue with Egypt, and truthfully, every other nation that is addressed, is not that God objectively hates them. Yeah. The issue, rather, is that they resemble the voice of the serpent. Oh, wow. These judgments are designed to break the connection between them and the archons that are ruling over them. Yeah. They're designed to destroy the sinful self-reliance of the nation and at the same time allow a humble penitent group of people to reach out and find the Lord. Man. If he does that to Israel and he does that to Egypt, what makes you think you will escape it? Yeah. Oh, better that we humble ourselves, huh? Yeah. Well, let's carry on in verse 23. They will chop down her floors, declares the Lord, dense though it be. They are more numerous than locusts. They cannot be counted. The daughter of Egypt will be put to shame, handed over to the people of the north. The Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says, I am about to bring punishment on Ammon, God of Thebes, there it on is. Pharaoh, and on Egypt, and her gods and her kings. There it is. And th on those who rely on Pharaoh, <laughs> I will hand them over to those who seek their lives, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and his offspring. Later, however, Egypt will be inhabited as in times past. Amen. Yes. In these verses, you can see very, very clearly these judgments are designed to break the connection between them and the archons. Ooh. That is always the first step. Break the connection. 
and then to destroy the sinful self-reliance of the nation and allow a remnant to turn toward salvation. A remnant can't turn unless those reliances are broken. This is not different than the way that Adonai deals with Israel. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? As he deals with Israel, he deals with these other nations. In fact, he does the same thing to Israel first and then to the other nations around the world. Now, in the coming verses, notice that the language shifts to Israel that is apparently within Egypt at a point in the future. Think second Exodus as you listen to these verses. So the prophecies within the context of Egypt, but he stops addressing the Egyptians at some point. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant. Do not be dismayed, O Israel. I will surely save you out of a distant place, your descendants from the land of their exile. Come on. Jacob will again have peace and security, and no one will make him afraid. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, for I am with you, declares the Lord. Though I completely destroy all the nations among which I scatter you, I will not completely destroy you. I will discipline you, but only with justice. I will not let you go entirely unpunished. Amen. Praise the Lord for the discipline of God that brings the salvation of God. Amen. So that you guys don't miss the point, uh, the eschatological point that we're making here. While we are going uh, through this text, do you remember that there's a time coming that's called Jacob's trouble? It's a time uh, in Israel's history that is still to come. This is a period that relates to a tribulation period. During the description of that time period in Jeremiah chapter 30, God says exactly the same thing that he said here. Listen while, to While Nick reads this to you, sound booth, leave Jeremiah 46 on the screen because the point is the similarity between these two passages. Amen. This is going to be Jeremiah 30 verses 10 and 11. So do not fear, O Jacob, my servant. Do not be dismayed, O Israel, declares the Lord. I will surely save you out of a distant place. Your descendants from the land of their exile. Jacob will again have peace and security, and no one will make him afraid. I am with you and will save you, declares the Lord. Though I completely destroy all the nations among which I scatter you, I will not completely destroy you. I will discipline you. But only with justice. I will not let you go entirely unpunished. Wow. You really shouldn't be able to miss this point. Jacob's trouble absolutely relates to being in Egypt a second time and returning from there. Wow. Come on. No, y'all should pause on, on that for a second. You, you, you evidently haven't gotten it. Everybody talks about the tribulation period. Everybody talks about the 70th week of Daniel. Everybody gets excited about a global antichrist figure. The book of Jeremiah clearly places a huge portion of Israel within Egypt during the same time period. It's happening in these verses. He said so in Jeremiah 30, and he says it again in Jeremiah 46, and that gives us a context for where they're being rescued from. Come on. Now, you should say thank you, but it's okay. You'll thank us later when you understand (laughs) more. So as we leave the Egypt subject and move on to Philistia, we want to further know something understand for you later. regarding Egypt and most other nations. There are two biblical views of Egypt displayed in the text. 
salvation and their God. But the other is of salvation for the remnant. Oh, come on. Yeah. Is that new to anyone? Yes. Yeah. That's, that's new to me today. I usually view it one-sided. But we have good teachers in this church. <laughs> the same could be said for Israel. The time of Jacob's trouble breaks the nation's idolatrous self-reliance and turns the surviving remnant back to God so that all Israel will be saved. Amen. Now, in a somewhat humorous fashion, Israel is saved from the oppression of Egypt first. Then Israel is saved from the seduction of Egypt second. Wow. You remember that from last week? Yeah. yeah. But the funny part is that even Egypt has to be saved from seduction of Egypt. <laughs> they have to be saved from themselves. <laughs> One could get the impression that God will have no rivals. Do you get that Israel cannot lean on Egypt? Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's, that's good. We got that. <laughs> but Egypt can also not lean on Egypt. Yeah. Well, let's make a personal application there. Okay. <laughs> Chapter 47. <laughs> Beginning in verse 1. Wow, we have a mass exodus in this room. Verse 1. This is the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah. It's okay. We only put like eight hours into this. We all slept in the same place, woke up, began studying. It's all right. Chapter 47, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet concerning the Philistines before Pharaoh attacked God. Appreciate the beauty of this. In chapter 46, Babylon was used by God to judge Egypt. Do y'all remember that? Yeah. But in chapter 47, Egypt is being used by God to judge Philistia. This is, uh, Peyton described it this way. Uh, in, in an Avengers movie, uh, Hulk is being attacked. And after a while, those that were attacking him, he is just picking up their lifeless bodies and attacking others with their bodies. <laughs> I don't know. I thought it was profoundly accurate. Whatever tool is in God's hand is his tool, whether it wants to be or not. Yeah. Nebuchadnezzar is used by God, but he's an idolatrous man. Pharaoh is used by God, but he's an idolatrous man. Here's a little mystery. The pseudo-Christ that is coming is just another tool in God's hand. Okay? It's like having a mad dog on a leash. Okay? It's not that everything they do is something that God wants someone to do. It's that he knows what they'll do, and he can use it to his purposes. We're going to pick up in verse 2. This is what the Lord says. See how the waters are rising in the north. They will become an overflowing torrent. They will overflow the land and everything in it, the towns and those who live in them. The people will cry out, and all who dwell in the land will wail. Now notice the repeating theme of the waters that are used to describe the nations themselves. Yeah as well as one nation being used as an instrument of judgment against the other. Are you starting to catch on to that? Yeah, yeah. The waters being representative of the nations as instruments of judgment. This is a consistent hermeneutic, and it goes all the way through the book of Revelation. Can you tell that we're dropping hints for something we want to teach you in the book of Revelation? Yes. Yeah. Well, you have to wait on that. It doesn't matter which nation God is using to attack. They're described as rushing waters coming in to do it. All right, let's pick up in verse 3. At the sound of the hoofs of galloping steeds, at the noise of the enemy, enemy chariots, and the rumble of their wheels, fathers will not turn to help their children. Their hands will hang limp. 
captor. Gaza will shave her head and voice. Ashkelon will be silent. O remnant on the plain, how long will you cut yourselves? Ah, sword of the Lord, you cry. How long till you rest? Return to your scabbard. Cease and be still. But how can it rest when the Lord has commanded, when he has ordered it to attack Ashkelon and the coast? Whoa. We had a nation here being addressed as the sword of the Lord. And I, I don't know. I'm, I'm used to Babylon. I'm used to different nations. But we're talking about Egypt here. Yeah. yeah. It's Egypt that is in the hand of the Lord to chasten Philistia. And Egypt is the one being viewed as the sword of the Lord in this passage. This is kind of difficult for a Western mind to <laughs> grab a hold of here. The reason why it's difficult for us is because Egypt isn't particularly godly at all, especially in context. Not godly at all, but the point here is, is that God is a God who has global sovereignty over the nations. Yeah. Yeah. We serve a God who is able to manipulate, use any nation that he wants to, to make his purposes happen on the earth. Listen to Psalm 82 and verse 8. On this topic. Rise up, O God, judge the earth. For all, somebody say all. All. For all the nations are your inheritance. Yeah, yeah, you thought that it was just one. Every nation explicitly stated in Psalm 82 are going to be the inheritance of God. Now, look, before you jump forward in your mind and then say, well, we're all homogenous. There's no difference between us. In some sense, that's true. And in huge sense, that's not true. There's only one nation on earth that God has said what their outcome will be. But the same standard applies to all nations. Everybody gets the opportunity. We just know that Israel will take the opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to have to move on to Moab, though. All right. This one, yeah, this one's in C-17, so. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. Uh-oh. Oh. Yeah. That doesn't just happen in Arkansas. <laughs> the older daughter had a son, and she named him Moab. He is the father of the Moabites of today. Wow, now we know where they came from. That's it, right there in the Word. The younger daughter also had a son, and she named him Ben-Amid. He is the father of the Ammonites of today. Now Moab and Ammon are the next two nations that are addressed, and it is done in the order of their birth. Fancy that. Both are relatives of Israel that have an awful habit of siding with Israel's enemies. That doesn't have anything to do with their origins, does it? <laughs> it might. <laughs> Concerning Moab. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Woe to Nebo, for it will be ruined. Kiriathim will be disgraced and captured. The stronghold will be disgraced and shattered. Moab will be praised no more. And Heshbon's men will plot her downfall. Come, let us put an end to that nation. You too, O madman, will be silent. The sword will pursue you. Wow. We will see verses that indicate a remnant of Moab being saved, just like all of the other nations. But already you can tell that the tone is somewhat severe. 
For instance, God doesn't call Moab my virgin daughter. Or my beautiful heifer. God himself calls Moab as a nation a madman. That tells you something about how he views their behavior, huh? It it really, it does. Nevertheless, there's a remnant even in Moab. All right, pick up in verse 3. Listen to the cries from Horonaim. Cries of great havoc and destruction. Moab will be broken. Her little ones will cry out. They will go up the way of Lebanon, weeping bitterly as they go. On the road down to Horonaim, anguish cries over the destruction are over the destruction are heard. Flee, run for your lives. Become like a bush in the desert. So it's clear that Moab will run for their lives. But some will escape, and think of them like a small Ruth contingent. But the implications are clear. God is very, very upset with Moab, and it's because they did something in particular that Egypt and the Philistines did not do. has to do where they came from. Let's pick up in verse 7, and we will get there. Since you trust in your deeds and riches, you too will be taken captive. resources, their Nile. He spoke to them about their gods. He spoke to them even about their political leaders, and he considered all of those things that they were depending on rivals. What does that mean for you, Christian, about anything that you are depending on? And be, be, be careful not to too quickly excuse yourself from that camp. He's addressing the nations of the known world. If, if this were occurring today, I assure you he would be addressing you. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, he is addressing yes. you. Come on. Yes. Yes. Yeah. As we move on to verse 8, what sticks out to me in these verses is that God can be so angry with the state of his people and the state of the nations, but his character doesn't change. If he doesn't change, he will fulfill his plan. Let's consider that as we move forward. Just 
assault on Moab, for she will be laid waste. Wow. Her towns will become desolate, and no one to live in them. All right, let me draw your attention to verse 9. It reads, put salt on Moab, for she will be laid waste. Her towns will become desolate, with no one to live in them. Do you believe there's more in that verse? Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's unpack it. The dynamic translation of the NIV may have missed something beautiful here. And we have a slide. So this is Jeremiah 48, 9. And here in the King James Version, it says, Give wings unto Moab, that it may flee and get away. For the cities thereof shall be desolate without any to dwell therein. It's quite different, right? How about the ESV? Give wings to Moab, for she would fly away. Her city shall become a desolation with no inhabitant in them. How about the complete word study? Give wings unto Moab. That, they may, that it may flee and get away, for the cities thereof shall be desolate without any to dwell therein. Each of the nations is addressed in a poetic style of prophetic speech. Many of them have a favorable name, like virgin daughter or beautiful heifer. Beautiful heifer. However, beautiful heifer. Mm. <laughs> so beautiful. However, each of them must face the torrents of the waters rushing at them from the sinful nations that are acting as an instrument of judgment against them because of their own sin. Here, Moab is given wings so that some may escape death in the time of ordained tribulation at the hands of the Babylon-like nations that are coming against them. Now, is that new to you? Perhaps this has bearing on Revelation 12. Well, let's see. (laughs) That all right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm just going to read you Revelation 12.1. Tell me if you think it's a beautiful prophetic description of Israel. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. I don't know about you, but I think that's better than being a beautiful heifer. Yeah. (laughs) Although they're both good terms. (laughs) This uh, seems to be the usual style of poetic prophetic language Describing Israel as God sees her as she will be, as he intended her to be. Just like when he calls another nation a virgin daughter. It's not that that's what she was. It's that's what he wanted her to be. That's the reason for when he calls another one a beautiful heifer. She might not have been, but that's how he sees her because she's his nation. Well, the chapter goes on to say in verse 13. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and a half time out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth, The serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. Are you guys starting to get it now? In all of these cases, a devilish nation is used in the hands of the Lord to chasten another nation so that their own self-reliance can be broken and a remnant saved. Do you hear the similarities to the repeating pattern in Jeremiah? Perhaps Jeremiah is the key to understanding the enigmatic mystery or imagery in Revelation 12. 
Israel will undergo the torrents of water raging from the beast nation. But Israel must be given wings so that a remnant can escape. Now, if you think those are literal rings or a rapture, you're very stupid. (laughs) Any more than they're literal rings for Moab. How ironic would it be, though, if this was first said to Moab and is now being said to Israel? Our point here is only that God uses the same standards and judgments for all nations. He just picked one that would be his preeminent example. One that he promised, hey, watch them because I am going to save them as a nation and how you relate to them is how I'll relate to you. He just picked Israel as the supreme example and promised that these events would culminate in all Israel being saved, meaning all Israel that survives the process. While the other nations don't quite have that guarantee, their warning is that they get to watch Israel. Israel's warning is you're going to suffer more than the other nations, but you're mine, and it will turn out right. This is like your neighbor's kids watching how you deal with your kids and then being adopted into your house. And knowing that how you treat your kids is how you will treat them. Okay? That is exactly what the biblical type is all about. I simply want to do something we've never done before. If you've ever sat in marriage teaching with us, I will tell you Song of Songs is a book about human sexuality. That it is a book about God's gift to married couples. That over-allegorization is a serious mistake in Song of Songs. Jesus will never drink from my navel. It's just not going to happen, even though I'm the bride of Christ. However, what Miss Jennifer and I do is none of your business. Song of Songs is about that. And yet, even I couldn't help but read Song of Songs 8 in a slightly different way today. All right, so this is Song of Songs, chapter 8, verse 7. Come on, <clears throat> Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot wash it away. If one were to give all the wealth of his house for love, it would be utterly scorned. Look, the point of reading this passage, are you starting to get it in connection to the river spewing from the mouth of the beast? We want everybody in the room to know that no matter how many of these kind of God-ordained but devilish nations are used to flood Israel for their refinement, those waters cannot quench the love that God has for Israel. They cannot quench it. They will only and only ensure that his bride loves him with the same love. Mm. Those rivers from the beast cannot quench the love of God for Israel. And you know what? You and I have been grafted into that. We've been grafted into that promise. Eric said earlier, wouldn't it be ironic if it was spoken to Moab first that they would receive wings to escape? It would be ironic. The truth is it's spoken to Israel first and you and I are grafted into that promise. The Lord will give us the same kind of Red Bull wings <laughs> as we are going into the rivers of judgment. 
Guys, what you're seeing us do, and some of you have varying levels of appreciation for it, and I, I understand that, I really do. So you're seeing us interpret the book of Revelation through the only medium that the people receiving it could interpret it. Through. That's exactly yeah. right. Okay. Well, let's pick up in verse 10. A curse on him who is lapsed in doing the Lord's work. A curse on him who keeps his sword from bloodshed. Moab has been at rest from use, like wine left on its dregs, not poured from one jar to another. She has not gone into exile. No, so she tastes as she did, and her aroma is unchanged. Now, if you don't understand <coughs> that phrase, like wine left on its dregs, I would encourage you uh, to talk to Miss Jen after class because she has a tremendous revelation on that passage. It's true. As we're talking and you see that Moab as a nation has not been moved, this needs to change for their hearts to be changed. They need to be turned over a little bit. They need to have some experiences that caused them to be shaken from their drunken stupor and their comfort. Yeah. Moab, up to this point, hasn't had to endure that kind of discipline. Not like Israel, at least. Yeah. But Moab absolutely will endure that kind of discipline, and it will produce a remnant. Have you ever read, Blessed Are You When You Are Insulted and Persecuted? Yeah. 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 Do you feel like it's a blessing? No. We tend to look at somebody else being blessed as they got a car or an amazing anointing or look at how they do whatever they do. Moab has never had the kind of discipline that the people of God have had. And he's going to bless them with it. Yes. Because it will produce some who get saved. How did Rahab get, or how, how did uh, Ruth get saved? Right. It was out of extraordinary famine and death. Right. See, you think that hardship is God being mean to you. Just like every kid that is being disciplined thinks his parents are trying to kill him and wants to live at that person's house that doesn't discipline their kids. Right. The way God is presenting this is Moab never having gone into exile was leaving them on their dregs. They weren't shaken up so that they could be fermented. They were not useful in any way to the Lord. But he has a solution to that problem. Amen. He's going to seriously shake things up. And sometimes not experiencing hardship and difficulty while you are doing wrong is the worst kind yes. of punishment. Yes. Because it allows you to keep doing what you're doing. Moab was conceived in disobedience. Moab was a relative of Israel that always sided with the enemies of Israel. And God always promised future punishment, but did not punish them in the moment. And he's saying the time has come. Wow. But days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send men who pour from jars, and they and they will pour her out. They will empty her jars and smash her jugs. Whoa. Wow. I, what, would you read that again? They will empty her out and smash her jugs. Oh, man. That sounds painful. That sounds bad. Then Moab <laughs> be ashamed of Hermos, as the house of Israel was ashamed when they trusted in Bethel. The Lord's making his point. Moab here is being likened unto northern Israel and what it has taken to discipline her. Again, the specific archon is named because these judgments are designed to break the connection between them and the archons. That's good. God wants to get them away from Chemosh or Chemosh. 
do this to destroy their sinful self-reliance and allow a remnant to turn towards salvation. Do you hear the parallelism? He's reminding them what he did to his own son. And so, of course, he's going to do it to them. Does that make sense to you? Yes. Let's pick up then in verse 14. How can you say we are warriors, men valued in battle? Moab will be destroyed and her towns invaded. Her finest young men will go down in the slaughter, declares the king, whose name is the Lord Almighty. The fall of Moab is at hand. Her calamity will come quickly. Born for her, all who live around her, all who know her fame. Say, how broken is the mighty scepter, how broken the glorious staff. Come down from your glory and sit on the parched ground, O inhabitants of the daughter of Jabal. For he destroys Moab will come up against you and ruin your fortified cities. Stand by the road and watch all who live in the Lord. Keep going. As the, as the man fleeing and the woman escaping ask them, what has happened? Moab is disgraced for she is shattered. That's kind of profound, isn't it? Some are escaping and what are they saying? Our national pride is gone. Keep going. Moab is for she is shattered. Wail and cry out, announced by the Arnon, and Moab is destroyed. Judgment has come to the plateau, to Halon, to Jaza, to Matash, Abash, to Devon, Nebo, and Beth, Ziblahatin, Beth Gamion, and Beth Neon, to Kirioth and Basra, to all the towns of Moab, far and near. Moab's horn is cut off. I don't know what to think about all of this. We got jugs smashed, staffs snapped, horns cut off. This is yucky. (laughs) Her arm is broken, declares the Lord. It's not within our scope tonight. I mean, I kind of wish it was, but in 45 minutes, I don't think we could do it and finish the chapter. To enumerate the events that will happen at Basra. But some of you may have read Isaiah or maybe Revelation 19. And have seen our Lord dripping in blood coming from Basra. Or the way in which Moab's arm is broken. Or the meaning of the horn, which is authority in the Bible, that is broken off. But we can say that Moab and every other nation will have their pride destroyed so that a remnant may seek the Lord. What do you think the implication is for you then? How long do you think you can sit in God's house and not do things God's way while saying amen and he will not shake you off of your dregs and will not put you in exile and will not force you into a circumstance where you are no longer sinfully independent of your brothers in this house? How long do you think that that will go on? Well, I'll tell you this. In Moab's case, the longer it goes on, the more severe it is when it happens. I'd rather a minor correction every day than no corrections for 20 years and all of it at one time. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe this is what Peter keeps thinking about when he says, you know, it's time for judgment to begin with the house of God. And if it's hard for us, what will be the outcome for the ungodly? Okay, That's why we're preaching on the topics we are. We'll also not be able to read verse 26. And relate it to the maddening wine. Somebody say maddening. Maddening. Wine of mystery Babylon's adultery. 
but some of you may get the point anyway. There are strong parallels between Jeremiah and the book of Revelation. Not all about Daniel in Revelation. The basis is actually Jeremiah. Let's pick up in verse 26. Make her drunk, mm. for she has defied the Lord. Let Moab wallow in her vomit. Wow. Let her be an object of ridicule. Was not Israel the object of your ridicule? Oh, wait, wait. Read that again. Was not Israel the object of your ridicule? Y'all see a motive for what God is saying at this moment? Yeah. Was she... Was she caught among the among thieves that you shake her your head in scorn whenever you speak of her? Yeah, you see, God is kind. How many are familiar with the passage that says uh, His kindness leads you to repentance? Yeah. Yeah. But see, also, God is stern. He jealously perfects Israel as a standard for how He deals with humanity. Israel's the standard for all. The flip side of that coin is that Adonai judges the rest of mankind in regards in how they relate to Israel. Now think about that for a second. You get why we're saying that? God has taken serious issue with Moab, who treats Israel badly at her founding as a nation, even though Moab is a near relative. He has not forgotten about it. This goes all the way back to Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and Nick's going to read that. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. Listen to verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you... I will curse. This is happening to Moab right now in this passage. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Future event of blessing all the nations through the nation of Israel. So good to understand that however the nations of the earth deal with Israel, you can be sure about what their judgment or lack thereof might look like. What does it mean when a nation has treated Israel semi-kindly, but then turns on them and rejects God's people and becomes an enemy. Well, you can know for certain that judgment is coming. Well, God never got over Moab's treatment of Israel. How about verse 28? Abandon your towns and dwell among the rocks, you who live in Moab. Be like a dove that makes its nest at the mouth of a cave. We have heard of Moab's pride. They're what? Her overweening pride Pride. and conceit, her pride Pride. and arrogance and the haughtiness of her heart. I know her insolence, but it is futile, declares the Lord, and her boast accomplished nothing. Pride, 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 arrogance, haughtiness, insolence. These are six descriptors of the same problem. Each of us in this room tonight should revisit selfish ambition, and vain conceit, because they all stem from one thing that God absolutely hates, and it's pride. Since there are six descriptors here, thought it would be fitting to give you six warnings. You want six warnings from the Proverbs? Yes. Okay, I'm going to hand these out. All right, Spencer, Proverbs 8, 13, Assad, the Lion King, Proverbs 11, verse 2. 
crowd, Proverbs 13, verse 10. Nick, Proverbs 16, 18. Paul, Proverbs 21, 24. Chris Riasora, Proverbs 29, verse 23. Proverbs 8, 13. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior and perverse speech. Very clear that he hates it. Why do you think he judged Boaz for their pride? Because it was something in their life that needed to be removed. And we would glean from this warning that if we have pride and arrogance and perverse speech, the Lord hates it. And it should be sobering to us. Let's go to Proverbs 11, verse 2. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. Well, church, let's engage with this for a minute. You know what this is like for Moab. Clearly, Moab is being disgraced before the whole world. How does this relate to us? Well, to have selfish ambition is not necessarily that you want to do something that is wrong. What if it's that you want to do something good, and in your pride, you would not vet that through the community that God gave you? You would not actually consult him. But in vain conceit, decided that you were the sole arbiter of what God's will was for your life. Hmm? Do you think maybe that that kind of pride also brings disgrace? I could name a couple self-proclaimed evangelists that are no longer with us and tell you that I can see it in their lives. I could name a long list of anointed godly people that simply could not work in teams and their lives ended in disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. It's an amazing thing that if you actually have heard from God, he can bring others to the same conclusion. And then you can know that you heard from God. But it is really disgusting, selfish ambition, and it is really vain conceit, which are other words for pride that cause you to go, no, I know what I've heard. Well, okay, buddy. Let's see how that works out. By the way, how's it worked out for you in the past? Well, I don't want to talk about that. Or you can't associate the judgment that has come in your life from the cause of the judgment. See, this is really hard hitting for us as we're looking at it because it's not like Moab just slaughtered Israel. They did have bad interactions with it. It's not like they were just doing something abhorrent. It's more like they were just doing whatever they wanted to do. And guys, that describes almost every life in this room. We're going to have to step this up, don't you think? I love that the whole teaching begins with Baruch. Because Baruch's descendant from nobility. Baruch is a man of position and authority. And yet he's working with Jeremiah. You would think that after 40 years, of working with Jeremiah, that Baruch would have a great deal of nobility, a great deal of recognition, a great deal of reputation as a man who stands on the authority of God. Not only did he not have those things and was denied it, he still had to be warned about wanting to do something great, that he needed to just consider that his very breath was a prize of war that God was winning. And that that 
had to be enough for him. Amen. Tell me that that's not a message for us in this room. Yes. Well, we have others. All right, who's got Proverbs 13.10? My pride comes only with pride, but wisdom is with those who take advice. By pride comes only strife. You can see this perfectly in Moab. You see, they did not come to aid of their own brothers, and they despised their own brothers in their trials. And that is why God was so upset with Moab. And the root of that was pride. What does the book of James says causes strife, backbiting, and uh, quarrels among us? How about that? And he was speaking to a believing community. The problem with Moab is they stayed independent because of their pride. But see, God in his wisdom has determined that wisdom is found in those who take advice. That means God has ordained it that the only way to have wisdom other than pride is to be in teams and to take advice from one another. This was Moab's problem. They would not do it, and they abandoned themselves to be separate from their brothers Israel. Did they have more or less reason to do it? You understand Philistia is like, what are these crazy Jews doing? But Moab is a relative. They're next door. God said when you go into the land, you cannot take their land. And Moab still did not aid, assist, and even at times attack Israel. Right. Who's got a Proverbs, Proverbs 16, 18? Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. You guys in the seats tonight, you guys LCM, part of this body, you're here because you're called. Nobody is arguing yeah. with the call that's on your life. Right. We confirm it. We, we stand live together with you. It, it's God ordained. It's something that he's already spoken, and nobody can take that away from you. What the Lord is doing, though, is he is honing us in, not, not on the fact that you're called, but on the method at which you carry out your calling. He's teaching us how to carry out the calling, so that we do not have pride that leads us straight into destruction. The last thing that we want to do with what God has been building here and building in the one association is to see it go into destruction in the next generation. Yeah. Look, guys, he's given us a key. Yeah. Unity brings usefulness, not just on an individual basis. Unity brings usefulness to this ministry. The key is, is that when we work together in unity, when we are one body of one mind, of one heart, of one uh, goal of the future, it prevents the destruction and the haughty spirit and the fall that would otherwise happen without the unity. Yeah. The destruction and the fall is a guarantee, but God has given us a unity and a desire to go after that, and we are going to have it in Amen. Who has Proverbs 21, 24? The proud and arrogant man, Mocker is his name. Ooh. He behaves with overweening pride. Did you say Moab was his name? <laughs> Moab. <laughs> Moab the Mocker. I'd like to tell you that a man you can be proud of is one who knows how to prophesy life into his brother. Come on. That knows how to call out potential and not just faults. If you find yourself in an effort to be transparent, is sizing up your brother and undressing them with all their flaws, then you might be proud and arrogant. 
And the scripture says you are a mocker. But we're called to prophesy life. Come on, man. If you think that those thoughts are just fleeting thoughts that you can just, yeah, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to deal with it. Because if I tell people how I really think, then that reduces me. Then you're mistaken. Hear what the scripture says. He behaves with overweening pride. What you're thinking will eventually work itself out into the open and prove itself through your actions. But we have an opportunity in this body, the way that the Lord is leading us, to be transparent. Just get it out in the open. This is not who I want to be. And inside, I am a mocker, and I'm proud, and I'm arrogant, and I want to be changed. But now we have each other as a collective body to put that to death. Praise God. Yes. Somebody tell Peyton that's good preaching. Yeah. Look, we are going to get this right. Proverbs 29, 23 is a good instruction. Yes. I'm sorry. Nobody get it? I'm sorry. A man's pride brings him low, but a man of lowly spirit gains honor. Pride is one of those things that all Christians know is wrong, but don't recognize when we're doing. That's why we're trying to help you define it. Believing that any good thing that you want to do is God, is pride. Believing that you do not need the examination of your motives by a body of Christ surrounding you (coughs) is vain conceit. And where we have these kinds of things, you'll find every other evil thing. And the good news is you can be pretty sure that your brother on the left and right has the same problem as you do, which means you're going to need each other equally, but they also have tapped into the same solution you have. And they may help you see something that you don't see. Amen. Happens to me every time we're in any leadership meeting. Okay? It's a gift, the body of Christ. We're building itself up. We're connected through joints and ligaments. We can only grow together. Yeah. That's quite a revelation that we're all having right now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay? We have 29 minutes. I want to use them well. And... We want to move through this passage relatively quickly because I think y'all are getting the point. And uh, pastors may have something to say about this at the end. Therefore, I will over Moab. For all Moab I cry out. I moan for the men of Kershaw. Who is wailing and moaning? Whether it's the Lord or Jeremiah, they're acting as one. And see, they're not happy about what's happening to Moab. God doesn't want Moab's destruction. He wanted Moab's salvation. Amen. Yeah. I weep for you as Yazir weeps, O vines of Zippah. Your branches spread as far as the sea. They reach as far as the sea of Yazir. The destroyer has fallen on your ripened fruit and grapes. Joy and gladness are gone from the orchard and fields of Moab. I have stopped the flow of wine from the presses. No one treads them without with Although there are shouts, although although there are shouts, there are not shouts of joy. You see, we can only pray for Moab and for ourselves in this kind of judgment. That we have the same attitude that is expressed in Habakkuk. This is Habakkuk 3, 16 through 19. You want to pay attention because the context is exactly the same, but a really different reaction. I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I wait 
I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. This was the heart of Habakkuk in the same situation. Although he had nothing, he chose to be joyful. He chose to thank God during the devastation. And then God enabled him to do something, to go on the heights with God. That is the attitude that Moab must have in this situation and that we must have in the coming crisis. And God will enable us to go on the heights as well. So let's pick up in verse 34. The sound of their cry rises from Heshbon to Elialeth and Jehaz, from Zor as far as Paranaim. Yeah. This Jim thanks you. In Moab, I will put an end to those who make offerings on the high places and burn incense to incense to their gods. Declares the Lord. So my heart laments for Moab like a flute. It laments like a flute for the men of Ker Harashet. The wealth they acquired is gone. Real quick, do you know why he's talking about musical instruments and lamenting for them? like a funeral. You you hear Jesus say the same thing. Yeah. Exactly the same thing. We played the flute for you, we sang the dirge, and you didn't respond. Not just true for Moab. It's true for those that walk with the Lord, too. Yeah. When you will not recognize the signs and move, then God laments over your funeral. Wow. And if you're in that situation... He will raise you from the dead, but you have to ask him. You, you have to recognize your condition. Okay? Now he's going to describe the condition, and it's going to hurt my feelings, Carlos's feelings, all of you who are follicularly challenged. <laughs> that, that was good. Every head is shaved. See? <laughs> and every beard cut off. Oh, man. Oh. Every hand is slashed, and every waist is covered with all the roofs in Moab and in the public squares, there is nothing but mourning. For I have broken Moab like a jar that no one wants, declares the Lord. How shattered is she is, how they wail, how Moab turns her back in shame. Moab has become an object of ridicule and an object of horror to all those around her. This is what the Lord says. Look, an eagle is swooping down, spreading its wings over Moab. Kerioth will be captured and the strongholds take In that day, the hearts of Moab warriors will be like the heart of a woman in labor. Now, in verse 40, when you heard that the eagle was swooping down, your heart might have fluttered a little bit. Maybe like Exodus 19, when the Lord came down and put his nation of Israel uh, like on eagle's wings and carried, carried them on his back and rescued them. This is not what is happening. No, it's the other side of the talent. eagle. It's the talents. Also in this passage, we have labor pains. And you also, your heart might have fluttered again. Labor pains, that means that there might be a birth. 
a birthing of salvation, just like it happened in the nation of Israel. As Eric said, we are on the opposite side of things in this passage. The God of Israel is against Moab's pride, and it's producing something. His judgments are swooping down like an eagle. She is in labor pains, but not labor pains for national salvation. Do you hear again how it's contrasted with Israel? Yeah. yeah. How about verse 42? Moab will be destroyed as a nation because she defied, defied the Lord. Terror and pit and snare await you, O people of Moab, declares the Lord. Whoever flees from the terror will fall into a pit. Whoever climbs out of the pit will be caught in the snare. I will bring upon Moab the year of her punishment, declares the Lord. You know what that says in Hebrew? Out of the fire and into the out of the frying pan and into the fire. Oh, yeah. No, not really. But it's a useful axiom. Yeah. Helps you understand. No matter where they go, it's getting worse. Uh-huh. Yeah. When a man will not repent and he persists in going his own way, no matter where he goes, it gets worse, even if it looks like it's better on the outside. In the shadow of his Take a deep breath, everybody. Y'all got it? Okay. Yet, I will restore the fortunes of Moab in days to come, declares the Lord. Her ends in the judgment. Here. Here ends the judgment on Moab. Oh, come on. Now, if you have the feeling that the phrase, here ends the judgment of Moab, is the best phrase that you have heard this evening, we sympathize with you. listening as we said that torrents of water, rivers would flow out of the dragon-like beastly nation to destroy, as if it were the sword of the Lord, destroy a nation that has been resisting him, to break their self-reliance, to break their self-determination, and a remnant could still be saved out of them, but those torrents would destroy. Have y'all heard that said? Again? Well, good, because we're going to do it seven more times through seven more nations, uh, resulting in the ultimate judgment on Babylon that forms the whole basis for the book of Revelation. I'd like to end the evening talking about a different kind of torrent. You know, you get to choose which stream you drink from sometimes. Come on. Mm. If everybody in the room could go to Zechariah 13.
How do we enter into calamity like Habakkuk and be joyful without having much and be confident in our God even though our circumstances are bad? How do we do that instead of enduring it like Moab and it being the end of us? Well, again, the nation of Israel's promises, what he will do for that national people are something we have come to share in something we get to participate in. On that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David. Amen. Amen. The inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. On that day, I will banish the names of idols from the land and they will be remembered no more declares the Lord Almighty. I will remove both the prophets and the spirit of impurity from the land. Everything that God brings into our lives is designed to separate the bond that we have between us and archons, between us and reliance on things other than him, even if it's Egypt loving Egypt or you loving yourself and your own self-appraisal, and your own self-motives. We can drink from a different river. Yes. Yeah. There is a river whose streams make glad Amen. the people of God. There is a river Amen. that will cleanse the people of God. We can have this kind of river come and judge us now yes. so that we can have Habakkuk's response when the torrential national judgments come. Amen. I want to drink from the throne of God. If Ezekiel is to be believed, and Come I on. do believe it, yeah. then water will flow from his throne out the threshold of the temple. Yeah. It will get deeper as it goes to the furthest places, even you and me, and every dead area that does not produce life for the living God Amen. will teem with life. Amen. Do you want that kind of river? Yes. yes. Somebody say the word blessing. Blessing. One of the major impacts of this fantastic word is the blessing of discipline. It's a blessing because God is helping us be rid of the wicked, evil pride that acts like a dam to the river that flows from the throne of God. And he's breaking down our selfish ambition. He is crushing our vain conceit. And one of the biggest obstacles is the way that we view ourselves. Oh, we can see someone else's pride easily. Except for our own. Tonight, we get the blessing of having the right biblical view of how the father treats his son. How the father wants all nations to be blessed through his sons, and experience the same river of life as his sons do. So let's stand to our feet now. Beth, would you put on the screen First um, John chapter 1? Um, let's start in verse 5. 
This is the message that we've heard from him and declare to you. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. None. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But, somebody say but. But. If we walk in the light as he is in the light and God is shining some serious light on this church. He is shining some serious kind of light into our hearts to let us see the actual pride that is really there. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one an- with one another. Yes. You can't get to the unity of the spirit that we've been talking about while we're walking in the pride of our own hearts, while we're walking in the darkness of the pride that we, that you and I still possess. We have fellowship with one another and, somebody say and. And. The blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Amen. It's going to get better in just the next verse. If we claim to be without sin, without pride, without self-reliance and self-determination, we are just deceiving ourselves. And his truth is not yet fully made manifest in us. But the next verse says, if we confess our sins, if we actually just acknowledge what is really there, Amen. he is faithful. Somebody say he is faithful. He is faithful. And he's just. And he will forgive us our sins. And he will purify us from all unrighteousness. Amen. Now is the time for us to go to the Lord. I'm amazed at what God brought forth tonight. I'm, I'm laughing tonight. I'm crying over here as they're sharing their deep things. And I moved in those ways because I can realize how much that what they said. Who could have possibly imagined that going through the judgment of other nations, eschatological connections can mean so much for you and for me tonight? Yeah. yeah. It is time for us to rightly confess our sins and watch our God be faithful and just to forgive us and to purify us right now. Raise your hands before the Lord. Mighty God, we cry out to you right now. By the light of your Holy Spirit right now, Lord, deal with the pride in our own hearts. Lord, we do not want to flatter ourselves so much to be, not be able to detect and hate our own sin. Lord, that your work tonight would separate us from the arconic forces. That the punishment, the discipline, the judgment that comes forth, Lord, that we can welcome it with joy. Because, God, it will cause us Lord, to rightly rid ourselves of the self-determination, the self-pardoning actions of selfish ambition and vain conceit. Lord, renew us in our hearts now. Lord, let us confess our sins before you, trusting in your faithful and just nature that if we do confess, Lord, you will be faithful just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, to purify us from all unrighteousness. 
Purify your people here in this place tonight. Come on, let's cry out to the Lord now, church. worthy to represent you in the nations that we say that we love and are sent to. 